Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, graduate researcher at Concordia University, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we dive right into things, here are some of the topics that we touched on in today's episode. We spoke about the three main theories of theory of mind in infants, the concept of change blindness, the Sally and Anne task, violation of expectation, what the speed of an infant's sucking behavior tells us about what they're thinking about, and how to stay organized and keep track of your academics, your readings, etc. Our guest today is master's candidate Eliza Dutemple. Lately, she's been working on a manuscript based on unpublished data comparing typically developing children to children on the autism spectrum based on tasks of naive or common sense thinking. For decades, it's been suggested that the social issues observed in children with autism spectrum disorder, or ASD, stem from their inability to develop a theory of mind or the ability to assess others' thoughts, feelings, and intentions and to act accordingly. Recent research has shown that children with ASD can perform explicit tasks requiring theory of mind when they get older, suggesting their developmental trajectory may simply be different. However, they seem to remain deficient in implicit theory of mind as measured by the patterns of where and for how long they look at things during theory of mind tasks. Eliza is looking to compare performance on an implicit theory of mind task to performance on tasks of naive biology, which tests understanding of life and growth, and naive physics, which tests understanding of mechanical functions and physical properties. She's expecting that the children with ASD will underperform only in the theory of mind task. Her own thesis will focus on metacognition in toddlers, that is, their ability to think about their own thoughts. She's trying to understand how understanding your own thoughts may guide your ability to think about others. But results have been inconsistent and seem to depend on the specific metacognition task being used. More work is to be done before Liza can determine if metacognition is a well-defined construct and if it can successfully be measured. But that's quite enough from me. So let me formally introduce our guest today, Eliza Dutemple. Eliza, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. What's cooking? <laughs> What's cooking? I guess theory of mind is cooking. Theory of mind's been cooking since we've been toddlers. Yeah, yeah, with a nice little side dish of selective social learning. And, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, big terms. Uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so we did speak about this briefly before we started recording, but just for the listeners, uh, the goal with this podcast really is to have a, an open discussion with graduate students about their research, their experience as researchers, and to keep it as accessible as possible. So if at any point in time I find that there are new terms that I maybe only picked up in my later academic career, I will definitely stop the conversation, uh, not necessarily in its tracks, but at the earliest possible time to recapitulate what we have not uh, yet covered explicitly. So just know that that is uh, on the table as an option. Oh, good. Yeah. Was there anything that I missed in that introduction? You did send me essentially that introduction that I tweaked slightly. Uh, is there anything else you want to add maybe that uh, potentially got glossed over or that you think is key before we begin? Well, I mean, it depends on to how much detail you want to go. I mean, about these different concepts and about implicit theory of mind. Basically, um, in the re most recent years, we found that uh, implicit theory of mind or basically how you your gaze behave your gaze behaves during theory of mind tasks can sort of predict or it follows uh, your belief tracking in a task all right so let's say you're sitting a kid down and they're watching a little video so the task that we use there's a protagonist and he watches his little car go into one garage 
And then a phone rings and it distracts the protagonist. So the dude looks away and while he looks away, the car changes and leaves one of the boxes and just leaves the scene entirely. And then the protagonist looks back at his boxes and the two boxes lit up and we measure where the children look. So at which box the children looks. Now, if they have theory of mind, we expect them to look at the box where the protagonist thinks that his car is, right? Because they are inferring the protagonist's thoughts, right? Because they right. think... Okay. It's like a dramatic irony in a film when you know something that the protagonist does not. Mm -hmm. okay. Exactly. So we can measure first look. So that look, that first instinct where the kid looks towards one box or the other. And we can also measure differential looking time or a, and calculate a differential looking score, which is essentially how much longer do the children look at the correct box versus the incorrect box. So that seems like a and pretty straightforward way of measuring theory of mind, technically or theoretically, but how do we know that what we're really measuring is theory of mind. How do we, like, what kind of manipulation checks can we do for a task like this to really know? Because of course the trouble with uh, research on small children is you can't just ask them explicitly who they're thinking for, right? Yeah, I mean, it would make things a lot simpler if we could just sit the kid down and say, you know, Mary, what do you think? Where do you think the dude's going to look? Um, which is essentially what we do when the children get older, right? At around four or five years old. Um, right. There's the classic Sally Nan task, uh, which is just Sally puts her marble in a box, leaves, and then Anne, the devious little Anne, takes the marble, puts it in the basket. And then when Sally comes back, where we ask the children, where will she look for her marble? And if they have an explicit theory of mind, they'll be able to say, well, in the box, because that's where she put it. But if they don't, they'll say, well, the basket, that's where the marble is now. But the problem with that task is that it's very uh, linguistically complicated, essentially, for younger kids, which, which is why it was thought that three-year-olds and below could not pass the task, which is why these implicit tasks were then developed mm -hmm. so measuring gaze and all of that when you first mentioned the the task with the car it made me think of uh change blindness i'm sure you're familiar with this there's a classic mm -hmm. classic uh classic video I, I believe it's like the uh the color car gorilla there's the gorilla right um i guess that's hey a type of change blindness but there's also one where where there's these people showing a card trick and you're you're fixated on the cards but in fact lots of different elements in the environment end up changing throughout this this video i hey, wonder there's like, like a curtain back and the guy's t-shirt and stuff like that right exactly so so right, when right. the child is is watching the screen and mm -hmm. they see that a car is being changed or moved it seems like the theory of mind operates uh, kind of on this on this on this change blindness where i guess maybe not exactly because the protagonist isn't actually in the scene looking so they don't see the change maybe i'm going off on a bit of a tangent that doesn't actually apply but i had i had briefly thought of change blindness in terms of the in something in the environment changing um well, I think the key difference here between those two things is that in change blindness, you're looking at the scene. So the protagonist here um, is not looking at the scene, right? He's not seeing the car or he's not attending to something other than the car in the scene. He's actually looking away, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the infants, when they watch such a task, we think what they're doing is tracking the protagonist's beliefs. Right, so where does the person believe his car is? Okay, ooh, so, okay, so, so I have a question then. So theory of mind of then implies that we have an innate desire to track people's beliefs or that we do it maybe even unconsciously? Uh-huh, exactly, that we have, um, well, there are these ideas of early meta-representational uh, abilities right so some people believe yeah. that 
that uh, they're as a very, very young um, infants have this ability to track mental states. And it's like an innate almost module in the brain. We innately want to understand our social environment and that makes us um, in, sort of, I guess, implicitly good or instinctively good at tracking thoughts, beliefs, feelings, intentions, and how that guides others' behaviors. Is there a point um, in, in, in child development where we actually uh, basically hit a peak in terms of our theory of mind abilities? Or is this a, a, a skill that develops all throughout adolescence and even later into adulthood? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question because for a very long time, so this initial task of Sally and Anne was developed in the 80s. And Simon Baron Cohen, who was basically the first one to test these things, had this theory that the key issue in ASD was an inability, right, to develop a theory of mind. And he created this Sally and Anne task. And he found that essentially, um, as a four years old, neurotypically developing uh, children, would pass the task almost invariably. So as a four years old, essentially, you have a theory of mind, period. But mm -hmm. so, I mean, we've come to know that it's a, a bit more complicated than that because they hadn't considered things like a second order theory of mind, um, for example. So um, a good example of that would be, um, have you seen Friends? The show Friends. Have you seen the show Friends, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I have. Well, you know the episode where everyone finds out that Chandler and Monica are dating and then Rachel and Phoebe go on this whole ploy to try to trick them and then Phoebe goes, oh, ha, they don't know that we know that they know we know they know. You know, things like that. <laughs> sure. I can't say that I remember <laughs> that episode specifically, but I definitely see where you're going. So please continue. It's a wonderful episode. What are you doing? <laughs> but regardless, um, so that's the idea of a second order theory of mind that you can essentially think about others' mental states about your own pub theirs. Okay, like meta metacognition. Kind of, kind of, yeah. Um, so they so obviously it gets more complicated, and then there are other researchers. Um, who essentially decided to start playing limbo and started asking, well, how low can we go um, for <laughs> the theory of mind tasks, right? Um, and one of the most groundbreaking studies was Onishi and Bayajon in 2005. Mm -hmm. And they had about 15-month-old infants sit in front of a violation of expectation task. So essentially they built up an expectation in the child based on their behavior and based on the child's looking time during the test trial they could assess whether the child was expecting the outcome of the behavior or wasn't and they said that this expectation was based on the actor's belief while they were doing the task now this this is a very very complicated way of saying that essentially when the actor held a false belief, so when the object, um, a bit like in the Sally Nan task, when the object moved without the protagonist's knowledge and then the protagonist reached for that box where the object was, the infants were more surprised. Right, how would you know you didn't see it? Exactly, exactly. And these were in 15-month-old children. Wow, um, and I remember that like it was yesterday. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, yes. My, my blazer and turtleneck. It was cold outside. Tell me, how have things changed? <laughs> you, were, you were in a blazer and turtleneck when you were 15 months old? Damn. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I was always just a very precocious child. <laughs> yes, but, evidently. Um, yeah, clearly. Yeah. Um, but uh, basically, but these are slightly different tasks. So how they measure this is in the infant's surprise. So uh, remember when I was talking about our task, we use an anticipatory looking task where we measure where the child looks and for, and for how long at one place versus another. Well, a violation of expectation paradigms such as what was used in Onishi and Bayergeon are a violation of expectation. So, uh, they have one test trial essentially where the actor reaches for either the correct box or the wrong box and then they just measure how long the child 
looks at the trial because it's a measure of surprise, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Purely so, okay, so I guess something that should just be mentioned quickly before we continue to move on is given that we don't have the, the, the verbal skills in young children, we're mainly using uh, looking and what their eyes are doing to tell what they're thinking. Yeah, exactly. Are there any other sensory modalities that we use in children uh, that could indicate, like, in terms of uh, maybe, like, bodily movement, like anything? Like, well, well, I mean... Like pointing, uh, you know, pointing or kicking or something like that? Uh, well, pointing we can use, yes. So um, in pre-verbal children, sometimes in some tasks, they'll ask the children to point at an image. So, for example, an adaptation of the Sally Nan task would have them, instead of asking them, where is Sally going to look for marble, they would ask maybe point to where she would look mm -hmm. or, or such things just to make the tasks a bit simpler. Um, but other than that, I mean, uh, for these types of tasks, no, we mostly use gaze. I mean, with very young infants, like a few months old, they, they use things like sucks per minute um to, <laughs> to assess like if they're interested in something into listening to a certain type of language for example um and that's one of just my favorite things to say that that's an actual scientific measure like sucks per minute in infants like it is very amusing so but, but it's nice. sucks per minute is is how many times they're sucking on a sussy per minute yeah on a like on a pacifier pacifier yeah for, wow. for example and yeah, okay, and that so can be that's crazy though. Like, how did we figure out that 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 sucking speed in an infant was related to things like uh, attentiveness or whatever it might be? I could not tell you okay. honestly. You don't know who the first <laughs> weirdo was that decided that was going to be a good methodology. You know what? I've asked myself the same thing, <laughs> but you know what? Like I said, it works. It it's science. Yeah, I don't, I don't question it too, too much. Um, and especially when, like you said, with infants, we don't really have a choice. We have to resort to these types of things. Right. If we want to try to understand what's going on in their teeny tiny developing brains. I feel like I did derail a little bit from the violation of expectation. If we could maybe go back <laughs> just to finish discussing that, we could then move on. Yeah, of course. Yes. Of course. Uh, my last point on this is that actually different types of implicit tasks uh, don't necessarily correlate very well with one another, which is one of the problems that we have in a literature right now. We have a bit of a replication crisis mm -hmm. um, because like violation of expectation paradigms um, are actually a little bit more robust than certain uh, uh, anticipatory looking paradigms, which are in turn more robust than certain helping paradigms. So paradigms where children have to help like actually actively help a protagonist through right. a situation where they hold a false belief or something. It's actually, it is interesting that you mentioned that because when I had Sean on the podcast, uh, we spoke about violation of expectation in terms of uh, humor. So yes, lots uh -huh. of jokes, lots of jokes are written in, uh, in a way that you actually do violate the listener's expectation and that leads to an outcome of laughing as opposed to increased sucks per second uh, or <laughs> sucks per minute. So it would be very interesting for a, for a stand-up comedian to, to tell jokes in front of an audience of people with pacifiers and just watch as they continue to suck at ever-increasing speeds. Uh, I don't think that would work in adults, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I know. Um, okay. All right. That, that paradigm is very, very specific to infants. Sure, but um, Interestingly, I've always thought a bit of, of humor in that way as well as a violation of expectation, but more than that, also as um, kind of a, a boundary um, in the cognitive sense. And they've shown that people remember information better at boundaries, um, like as determined by your hippocampus, essentially. When you see boundaries, you mean what exactly? I just mean like, uh, for instance, sorry, I used to do memory research, so this just yeah. hits really close to home. Perfect. Um, but for, for, for instance, if you're uh, learning like the, the order of faces, like you're just shown like, let's say 10 faces in a row, yeah. 
and you pair two faces at a time with a certain room. Um, your, the context will be the room and then the faces and then as the room changes, then that can essentially create a boundary between, uh, between one room and the other. And you remember information better at boundaries. So you'll remember faces um, at a boundary better than faces which are like, let's say like smack in the middle of the presentation order. So let me just see if I, if I understand this. Let's say I show you 20 pairs of faces across two different rooms. So I'll show 10 pairs of faces and that 10th pair that occurs right before I switch rooms to the 11th pair in the second room, those, those, those boundary pairs will be the most salient. Essentially, yes. And um, I've always wondered if that's why we tend to maybe learn better when things are paired with humor because there's a bit of that boundary effect that like we don't expect it and therefore maybe we remember it better. But that's you're just saying, my... Using, you're saying humor as a learning tool is, is effective. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, maybe. could you give me an example of that? Well, not a scientific example, but I can tell you okay. that I remember a lot of very random information from uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, which is a very, very informative show, but which is also very, very funny. Um, and I tend to remember the information around the humor. But yeah, okay. so that's, again, you would need the scientific backing for that. And that's very much of a tangent. It has nothing to do with infant research, but... No, but that's um, okay. But that's, you... that's interesting. I do like tangents and I do like where this is going right now, because from what I understand in my limited um, knowledge about memory is that memories that are negatively valent or that have carry a negative emotion generally are remembered more strongly and for longer. So humor and laughing, I would, I would argue to say, are generally positively valent. Um, but you're saying injecting humor can make something easier to remember. So maybe compared to a baseline of neutrality. Maybe, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyhow. I mean, if, if humor really is... Yeah, but if humor really does act as this violation of an expectation and that is this boundary, then it is possible that, yes, we could see this effect. Um, I don't know how robust it would be because you are right. Memories who, that are negatively valenced tend to be better remembered. And that has like a, a very important sort of evolutionary effect, right? Like we need to remember the bad things that happen to us so that they don't happen again. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just adaptive for us to do that. Right. Fair enough. Um, one thing that I always think about when I talk to people who study children is how did you get to the point? How did you decide you wanted to work with a demographic that you could not really speak to? <laughs> That's at least part of what makes research interesting for me is, is the ability to study people like me. Yeah. How did you like what what drew you to children as a study subject? Um, well, I've always loved kids. I mean, I know it's just very cheesy to say, especially that like I'm a woman. So I, I feel like I'm fulfilling all types of stereotypes right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always just, I've always just been very interested because kids are like, they have a certain vitality about them. They're just very interesting and they're interested in many things. You know, they okay. ask a lot of questions. They're very curious. Um, and we don't necessarily know, we don't know what's happening in their brains. And I wanted to understand that better. And I was fortunate enough to have a wonderful professor um, at McGill, Dr. Dirks, mm -hmm. um, who taught two uh, uh, developmental classes, one on, con on development um, and one on uh, psychopathology in children. And she just injected that passion in me because the research was just very clever. I think that's what also really gets me about infant and child research is that these paradigms are just in incredibly innovative and, um, and clever. 
you know, like someone had to gotcha. think, like you yeah. said earlier, right? like you had to think about the sucks per minute and you had to think about the violation of expectations, you know, that you had to notice that children, you know, look more when they're surprised or when they're confused at an outcome, you had to mm -hmm. notice all of these things. And I know as well that especially theory of mind research is very fraught right now because we have all of these different theories to explain perhaps why infants display sometimes a theory of mind and sometimes not. And I kind of wanted to be part of that debate. Okay. So the debate of theory of mind then, are there two sides to it, two, two definitive sides, or is it a bit muddier than that? Oh, it's very muddy. Um, there are essentially about three views on theory of mind right now. So there's an early meta-representational view, which was kind of started with Onishi and Bayergeon, and it's this idea that we're kind of, we're born with an innate sort of ability to track mental states and yeah. intentions uh, and all of that. Early as in uh, when? Because to me, studying children, it, all of that means early. Early meaning about 15 months. Okay. So like in the toddler time. research, I guess, are we saying that like the, the demographics you're studying are between 15 months and four years? Is that basically the range? Before, okay. before two years old, I would say that's comfortably infancy research. Okay. And so, and there are different also facets, right? A theory of mind. So we have these, uh, we have goals, beliefs, intentions, and uh, it's pretty well agreed upon that intentionality is or an understanding of intentionality is developed fairly early at around six months. Um, but false belief is thought to be kind of the litmus test for whether or not you have a theory of mind because it's one of the most complex um, mental state to attribute. Right. Okay. So belief and, is different than like desire because you're saying at six months kids kids know what people want or their intentions at least for example okay. what they would like. um so for well for example a simple task that tested this was they had two toys on two pedestals and then they had a hand reach for a toy repeatedly Mm -hmm. And then on a test trial, they had the hand either, they switched the toys and they had the hand either reach for the same toy or reach for the same place. And they found that kids were more, uh, were more surprised when the hand suddenly changed for the other toy. So reach for the same place with the different toy. So it, you can understand by that, that the children had ascribed to the hand the intention of reaching for a specific toy and well and the, the second part of that experiment was instead of a hand they had a wooden stick okay uh-huh um, yeah i love the and, cleverness there okay so you're taking away the human agent sure exactly and they found that they, they found essentially the reverse pattern so when the wooden oh stick, i love that that's amazing Right. So when the wooden stick reached for the same pedestal, the infants were not surprised. That's what they're, but that's what it's supposed to be doing. But when they switched to the other toy, then they were like, what do you mean? You can't have intentions. You're a wooden stick. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I love that. Oh. I'm, I'm glad. But see, this is what I mean about infancy research and toddler research is just so innovative and interesting. I also just like the image of like adult humans tapping pedestals with sticks and watching babies suck increasingly rapidly on their sussies and whatnot. It's just a hilarious setup. Like the kinds of setups I see in my lab. Well, first of all, most of the time I just leave the undergraduate students to their own devices in a dark room where they're staring at a computer screen. So I could do my own interesting manipulations there, but yeah, I, I could definitely see just, just by virtue of listening to this specific paradigm, why child, development research would be interesting for the research yeah yeah i mean it requires also a lot of acting on our part right because you you often have to interact well anyways before before this pandemic you had to interact with them in person right, right. and there was a lot of acting involved in that and i've had to you know i put up well some of people in our lab have put up puppet shows for wow. the children and those are tasks um to evaluate things like social learning or, um, or theory of mind. 
and I've had to also emote essentially uh, in congruence or incongruence with an object that I was given. So for example, if I expressed a need for a spoon and then was given a spoon and then acted sad, that would lead kids to not trust me in a task right after because they thought, well, I can't trust her. She's sad when she gets what she asked for. I can't trust this lady. They don't want to learn from me. Is it happens. always a little bit sad for you too when you realize that you've, you've created distrust in yourself? <laughs> Um, a little bit, but they tend to be very forgiving. Yeah. To, yes, especially the, the two-year-olds. Are they equally um, forgiving when you pull your hands out of your pockets and show them that they're actually just wooden sticks? <laughs> uh, they would probably be heavily traumatized. Yeah, wooden would... sticks for fingers. <laughs> That's why you can't trust me. I'm a broomstick. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Hope not. Yeah. No. Not, not quite, but, but yeah, that's just a, another example of how these tasks can be uh, just very cleverly designed that's and correct. interesting as well for us to, to, you know, breathe life into them, essentially little plays for the kids. And they always yeah. have a lot of fun. I love it. That's so. great. Um, this was, this was a bit of a deep dive into, uh, well, just off the central discussion we were having about the three sides of the theory of mind debate. So just to bring us back there for a sec, all good though. Love these tangents. Um, you said there was the, the early metacognitive. Meta-representational. Meta-representational. Yeah. This is also known as sort of a rich view of theory of mind. So that infants are essentially like kind of have a fully formed uh, theory of mind early on. Um, it's a bit more complicated than that, but let's just move on to another view. So there are also uh, leaner interpretations of theory of mind. So one of them is um, just this leaner view where uh, infants would base their reactions on simple associations in the behavior. So essentially associative learning. So for example, um, instead of thinking, oh, the child is looking longer because they're tracking beliefs, they're looking longer because that's not where the object was last seen, or that's not, it's not the same configuration as before. So for example, if they associated the object with the actor, then that would be an association. And if the object is not at the same place with the actor, then there might be a different association. And maybe that's why they would be reacting uh, surprised or reacting in a surprised manner. So it sounds like a little bit more conservative then. Exactly. So there, um, so there are these different, these rules, these associative rules, or perhaps it also has to do with memory. So some people have advanced the theory that maybe children or infants are just not good at remembering where the objects were um, because, I mean, their memories are still developing. So perhaps that's an issue as well. So in all in all, like this view just advances other simpler, more parsimonious explanations instead of just jumping directly to they understand thoughts. Okay. So... I'm going to ask you which one appeals more to you, and then I'll tell you which one appeals more to me. Is there well, a third, though, before we do that? I, yeah, I, exactly. I think... So the third one is a bit, a tiny bit of a middle ground, and it seems to be gaining a lot of traction. So it's a two systems theory of mind. Okay. So we would have a first system that develops very early, and the system would be completely implicit and unconscious. So infants might be really reacting to thoughts and beliefs but they might not be doing so consciously and then later on a second system develops which is more conscious and controlled and that would be our explicit essentially uh, abilities in theory of mind this sounds very kahnemanian <laughs> very what Sorry. Uh, so Daniel Kahneman uh, wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, where he outlined oh. two systems, uh, like a fast acting system one, which is more implicit and a more, I guess, yeah, slower system two. Yeah, yeah. It, it's essentially, it's very, very similar. Um, and that would explain sort of the inconsistent behavior because we've done tasks that, for example, in our lab very recently, 
we published a paper uh, this was the recent a recently graduated student kim did a project where she had infants watch essentially the same task as onishin by argent um but instead of a human agent it was a toy crane um oh, yes and, i remember this from your presentation yes exactly and what did the infants do they actually ascribed mental states to the toy crane um so this kind of is a bit of a nail in the coffin because sure they seem to be tracking beliefs but no adult would ascribe beliefs to a toy crane right and they did the same paradigm with adults and in fact that's what they found is that adults did not behave like the infants and so one of those one of the explanations that we advanced what in the discussion was well it might have been this two system uh this two system theory of mind acting so the How young were these children yes yes these, these were infants they, they were about 16 months old okay mm -hmm. so you think that they were still operating on on their i guess we can call it system one or this this early system yes exactly this early unconscious system that doesn't really differentiate it just says okay things are moving there's got to be some intentionality here yeah essentially essentially like there's there's a lot more uh, complexity there because we have to consider uh, was the toy crane giving off enough cues to suggest agency we argue that not really um but i mean there is some some gray zones in there because they have shown that children do attribute mental states not just to toy crane but also to uh, geometric shapes sure or moving blobs or um i don't know if you've uh heard about that study i think it was clin 2000 but they essentially show little videos with geometric shapes and you can easily ascribe mental states to those shapes right it's with um, triangles right yes yes exactly yeah uh yeah that's so that makes sense to me uh, in terms mm -hmm. of, of, of what my life experience has been. We all know that young children like to watch television shows where uh, objects are personified. We have the map from Dora um, and we have, oh. I guess, other things from other shows. I'm far too dissociated at this point from that reality, but... Um, I mean, Beauty and the Beast, half of the cast is objects. There you go, there you go. <laughs> so, but I, so here's what I'm curious then. Um, can you convince older children, or basically, can you break this, how should I say it? Break, okay, hold on a second. Let me figure out how I'm gonna ask this question. Okay. If you introduced more of a human component to a broomstick, for example, let's say you had a video of a stick that kind of went back and forth or bounced up and down to the cadence of speech, for example. Like, hi, I'm a broomstick, and it would go up and down. Could you, could you inject like more human nature into it that way and convince children that it then does have agency? Yes, what? absolutely, absolutely. The threshold, right? But but that's that's the thing. I mean, I think that threshold is still a little bit blurred. Um, but to for something to be living is different from something to be like an agent, right? And there's and you have to give off different cues so self-propulsion for example and show intentionality these are things that will give you that agent status okay um, so there are criteria yes there are criteria and they're being explored there's a wide literature on that which i am not perfectly obviously um familiar with okay but there but there is there are researchers who are who are trying to build basically a list of criteria that say, okay, this is this is the the point where there's enough information for a child to say, okay, this person has or this thing has intentionality or is an agent, and then more they could almost start to blur the line between, uh, you know, an mm -hmm. object that that has that's pretty much acting just like a human would, but it's but is not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, typically we would expect. Um, if the object is given any type of human characteristics like eyes or nose and a mouth, that, that's a huge cue for the children, but also self-propulsion. So if the object looks like it's moving on its own. Right. As in the triangle task, right? All yeah, exactly. Around, doesn't seem to be any external agent doing it. And of course, kids don't understand what software is yet. Uh, so. <laughs> 
Exactly. Well, yeah. that's what we're banking on. Although kids are getting smarter and smarter. It's true. So, you know, and if you put an iPad in front of them uh, at, you know, five months old, they might grow a very early understanding of um, machines and softwares. And that's actually another very interesting area of research and social robots and trying to understand how children will want to learn from robots versus humans. Wow. Okay, but you haven't really spent much time on your own researching that. That's just something ha happening in tandem. <laughs> yeah, basically. Wow, that's crazy. I appreciate that. Uh, interacting with children is hard enough as a human being trying to train uh, a robot to do it better. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's possible. It, yeah, I mean, it feels like... It, it does feel like a bit interesting, but that's kind of where the world is heading to, right? Um, I mean, robots are, well, they're, they're not taking over. Like, don't, I'm not going to try to be smart. Hi, welcome to Abstract, the conspiracy <laughs> podcast with Eliza Dutempo. Hi, Eliza. So tell us, tell us how far away from the singularity we are. Um, oh, God. <laughs> we're, we're still pretty far. It's all good. Not to worry. Arnold Schwarzenegger is not coming to kill you anytime soon. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, basically, my supervisor, um, Dr. Poulain Dubois, has done a lot of work with social robots and trying to understand is, is essentially how many characteristics do they have to have for children to trust them as much as they would trust an adult. Okay. Um, and I think it's been on her to-do list to sort of explore that further. To build um, a robot. Well, no, we buy the robot. But oh, you then buy the robot. Yes, yes, but then we we can use them for experiments. We've never, well, I personally have not done that yet, um, but we've extensively talked about these types of tasks, and it's very interesting. That's great. I can't wait to hear more about children interacting with robots, robots with sticks for arms, all of robots <laughs> sucking on sussies. It's going to be crazy. I'm a broomstick. <laughs> I'm a broomstick. I'm going to take over the world. That's perfect. Okay, so... So we've touched on, I guess, the three different different parts of the theory of mind debate. Which one do you associate most with? The the uh, the meta representational, if I remember correctly, is the first one. The second one was the which, and that's the rich rich theory. Then we have the leaner theory. Then we have the like dual like the dual root dual level. Yeah, the two systems. Two systems. Um, well, I think that so far the two systems is very compelling and I mm. think there's a lot of evidence mounting and it can help explain, I think, some of the inconsistencies that we've been seeing. Um, and as research goes, now we have so many studies that have been done uh, with these different paradigms and now we know which paradigms might be a bit more robust, might be better to use, and that may lead to more conclusive uh, results as to what is exactly is happening with theory of mind right now in infancy and if it's you know fact or fiction. Do you think there's something happening where uh, this is something that I also think about in terms of finding a theory that seems like it's not too simple right? You don't want something <laughs> that's too complex or too simple you want something nice in the middle and so now that you have this this like two two systems thank you two systems theory it seems it, it just seems almost intuitively better than trying to answer everything with like one sweeping argument? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost, like you said, it's a bit of a Goldilocks argument. Yeah. Right? It's like, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just perfect. It's, it's a bit of a middle ground view. Um, but that's often how research goes, right? You find, you know, you find a certain result and you claim something based on these results. And then someone, someone is going to find that absolutely egregious and they'll try to disprove you and they might be able to. But then the problem is, is over the years, there have been so much volley in between those right. two views, right? So we try um, to reconcile them. Yeah. And another problem is just the publication bias, right? Not a lot of papers will necessarily want to publish null results. So if you try to replicate the study, but then don't get any results, then there's a possibility that you won't be published. And I think for a while, that's what gave um, a bit of an edge to the early meta-representational view, because it's much sexier to publish about 50-month-olds having theory of mind than not. Right. Okay. I feel that. Well, I it's, mean, it's tough. 
even in my own field of research, or just from what I've read, I've always, maybe even in a biased way, found the theories that, that are just a little more complex, a little more enticing. When it's too simple, it, it often feels too good to be true. Yeah, and yet all of these theories kind of claim to be the most parsimonious, right? Or like the simplest, the most direct. For sure. Just in the last month or so of uh, doing some literature review for my thesis, I've compiled a Word document of theories I've come across in papers. And before I started doing that, uh, which was definitely a mistake, so for those of you undergraduates listening or anybody at any point in your academic career, if you haven't started a Word document or a, a Zotero or some, some kind of reference manager of some sort, keep track of the theories, because there are so many theories that have been posited over the years, it's, it's impossible to keep track. And it's actually, it's, it's quite overwhelming. Um, and pretty much impossible yeah. to reconcile all of them anyways. So. Yeah, and also just maybe also an Excel document with a list of all the papers you've read. That's also very helpful. Yep. Um, sure. Just, yeah, I, I mean, if we're giving out tips to undergraduates, that's- We're giving out tips. This is, this is uh, Tips Friday. <laughs> um, I think we should come up with a catch here named them Friday. But. Fun tip Friday. Fun. Oh, okay. That's cute. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. So keep a, keep a list of your theories and keep a list of the papers you've read because your supervisor will ask you about them. Yes. And you'll ask yourself about them and you'll have no idea what you had done in the past. Um, organization is key for sure. Good tips. Yeah. Thank you, Eliza. Very good yeah. tips. Oh, there is plenty more where that came from. Yes. I, I, I believe I'd also mention this either with Sean or with Alexandra, um, that it's one of the beauties about, about staying in a field for any duration of time is that you get to continually learn from the people above you who've made mistakes. Yes. And so uh, right now we are currently making mistakes we're not yet aware of. And yeah. then somebody somewhere hopefully is going to learn from those mistakes before they make them and so I actually tend to derive a lot of enjoyment just from knowing that fact about my own reality and yours and everybody else's is that we're gonna make mistakes and as long as either we or somebody else can learn from them it's all good absolutely I know I'm very conscious that in a year when I'll be writing up my master's thesis it'll be like working with a very incompetent collaborator but the collaborator is you but a year before <laughs> Yes, that's funny. I like that. So, yeah. And if I can use those mistakes, like you said, to help out any of the uh, following generations, like, please, this is what mistakes are for, right? Yeah. Growth mindset. Mistakes are good. Growth mindset, you said? Yes, growth yes, mindset. Absolutely. It's a very, very important principle in education and learning. Mm -hmm. um, if you're curious into the about the motivational literature. Sure, sure. <laughs> I came across a great quote. Uh, I don't remember exactly word for word, something along the lines of the, the master has failed more times than the apprentice has even tried. Yes. Something oh, like that. Beautiful. Uh, That's beautiful so. and very encouraging. Yeah, I love that. And uh, so, yeah, I guess takeaway Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to stick with the tease. Takeaway Friday is um, don't be afraid to fail. Definitely not the first time it's been said, but it's going to be said again because sometimes these these uh, these seemingly obvious uh, truisms or 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 proverbs they do ring true and they are repeated for a reason. And it's because if you really think about them, then you might get something out of it. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Please do not be afraid to fail because, and, and also remember that everyone else is failing with you. I think that's also like a very important thing to keep in mind that like, you're not the only one that's like flailing a bit. Very true. If, if someone claims to not be failing, then they are failing to be truthful. So yeah. Ha, gotcha. <laughs> Ooh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So uh, speaking of failure, Eliza, what is what is the biggest failure you've experienced in your uh, in your experience so far in grad school in terms of either uh, reading a paper about an absolutely horrendous 
horrendous study that failed visibly or in your own personal experience in the lab? Well, when we started writing the manuscript, um, I was actually using one of the wrong variables for the results. Mm. Um, but this was because this was, like I said, this was not my project originally. This is unpublished data. Yeah. Um, and I was basically just using the wrong column on SPSS. <laughs> Uh-oh. What was, what was the variable supposed to be and what variable were you using? Just to, just to see how different they were. It's just the theory of mind measure. I was just supposed to use the theory of mind measure from the first session and not the averaged between the two sessions. That's uh -oh. it. But it was, so it was a very honest mistake. Right. Um, but it was the kind of thing that, you know, set us back maybe a day or two, or two to rewrite the results um, okay. and all of that. But all, but obviously there are other like little things, right? That kind of that kind of pile up, right? So I focused a lot, a lot on my classes, um, and kind of neglected that list of readings, for example, that I was making. And then suddenly, when it came time to focus on my thesis again, I had a folder with like thirty somewhat papers that I had read, not all of which were listed. And I couldn't remember if I'd read them or not and led me to have to reread a lot. Right. Um, wow. So these kinds of like organizational oversights, mm -hmm. like it's very important to find a balance between like the classes and the research. Um, I think, and that, well, I mean, speaking anyways, as um, a clinical student who has way too many classes. <laughs> Right. I, I don't know what your life is like exactly. I did have my own classes to take, but not nearly the same volume of coursework. Well, it's it's just different. And I think um, because we're still in our master's, we just have a lot of learning to do still. Um, but it'll, it'll die down a bit um, eventually. And then we can focus more on our research. Um, because, I mean, we're here for both, right? It's the uh, clinician-practitioner model researcher practitioner model that we're trying to uh, to hold up as our ideal mm -hmm. which one are you more enticed by so far oh well i mean not gonna lie i mean i want to do clinical work eventually that that would be my more permanent um job but in the meantime i mean i i love the research um i think it's also helping me develop the organizational skills that I know I'll need um, for the clinical side of things. And it's, uh, I, I don't know, it's just very, it's just very interesting. And I like learning and I would like to also disseminate that knowledge. So if I could, you know, maybe eventually uh, be like a part-time lecturer or something and sort of help spread that love of knowledge and science and psychology, that would be, that would be great. Awesome. Well, you found the right podcast to, uh, to spread knowledge. I guess, well, I guess the goal of most podcasts is to spread knowledge, but this one, this one more than the others. Yeah, I totally agree. I knew that you would be doing a great job from the minute that you opened your mouth in central topics and made morphology interesting. Oh, and great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, you earned my undying respect because oh, wow. The paper you gave us to read, I wanted to tear my eyeballs out. Um, but so then slight, yeah, yeah, slight, uh, slight uh, backstep here to explain what Eliza's talking about. Uh, for this course we took back in the fall 2019. Um, up well, until I, very recently. <laughs> up, yeah, up until mere weeks ago, uh, it was a full year course, but I did a presentation. We all did presentations in the class where we had to give the class uh, about a week before the presentation, a paper that kind of touches on the kind of topics we'll be discussing. I uh, selected a paper that was very difficult to read, very difficult. It was not even remotely an introductory paper. It was a huge oversight on my, huge failure on, on my part. Just not to just put, put uh, Eliza under the microscope here, but I failed miserably in my selection. Everybody was against me. I got torn to shreds in the responses. To oh, which, no. which I replied to individually for every single response, by the way. So you can go check back. I replied to your response. Oh, no way. Oh, good for you. Well, I mean, you're making up for it with the podcast here, right? You're trying to make research accessible, much exactly. more accessible than that paper. 
maybe that failure actually led me to to reel so hard that I decided to start a podcast in order to kind of counterbalance my failure to be accessibly science oriented. Um, so anyway, uh, you're saying that the presentation was was definitely more accessible than the paper. So yes, you're an excellent public speaker, and I could not believe that I was actually interested in all of that intricate talk about syntax and morphology and it's only that last part the, the i couldn't believe i was interested that hurts a little you know because I, I like to think that what i study is just inherently interesting it is interesting like i've taken a linguistics class okay. um, in my graduate degree i am interested in it i think it was more the expectations that you laid with the paper yeah. that made me so surprised at enjoying the presentation so much because i was expecting to not understand a single word that was going to come out of your mouth Great. I, I appreciate that. I actually wish that I could say truthfully that I gave the difficult paper so that the the incongruency would be so large that no matter what I said, it would seem like butter. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it and I'm glad you felt that way. Uh, I think so. it wasn't just me. I'm, I'm sure of it. Lovely. Enough <laughs> about myself. How would you describe yourself as a person? <laughs> okay, sorry. So this this segment is 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 called "How would you describe yourself as a person Friday?" Oh, so okay. it does really happen. Yeah, it'll it'll really happen whenever. But it's it, this is a question that I have so far asked to both guests before you, and I intend on hopefully asking all of my guests so I can compile a list of people's self descriptors. Um, so the question is, I guess, twofold. The one is, uh, how would you describe yourself as a person? And also, how do you describe yourself as a student? And how do those words relate to each other? Are they the same? Are they different? Do you flip a switch at the end of the day when you go from research to just fun, Eliza, or, or regular life, Eliza? Uh, well, I guess my self-identity has always been very much tied to my studenthood, okay. um, quite, quite honestly. Um, I've always, when I was a kid, I, I wanted to go into medicine. So I knew that, you know, when I was six years old, I was like, I need good grades if I want to get the med school, um, type of thing. So it, the two have always, have always been very intertwined, but I've always loved the arts as well. So if I could describe myself as a person, I think I'm just very passionate about people in general. I want to understand what makes them tick. Um, which is part of the reason why I love psychology so much and why I love art so much because art in general, whether it's uh, song, dance, painting, theater, um, which is my personal favorite, it's kind of a window to people's souls. Um, and I find that just wildly interesting. So, so you're, you're interested in, in the aspect of art that is a reflection of people. Yes. All comes back to the people. You look at a piece of art or you create a piece of artwork and it's not just beautiful or great in its own right, but it is beautiful and great by virtue of, of, of exhibiting a piece of humanity. Yes, exactly. And, you know, some would argue that a piece of art, if successful, will reflect as much of the artist as the person looking at it, right? <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting a bit intense here, but, um, but yeah, so I would say as a person, I'm just very interesting, interested in people. Um, and, um, I'm a, a bit silly as well, whether it's research or not. I'm keeping track of all this, by the way, all of my guests have a word document that I, that I, that I scribbly type notes about them while they, while they speak. And I might release them for a fee later. That's how I'm going to monetize. <laughs> are you are you going to take notes? Are you going to psychoanalyze us? And exactly. Oh, yes. She's silly and she likes people. Maybe she suffers from this disorder. Oi. Uh, I, I wouldn't play that game. I mean, we're... No. Well, 200 bucks an hour. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, they've shown that psychology students get, like, similar symptoms than med students, right, when they learn about different dis diseases. So med students often, when they start reading about disorders, they'll start exhibiting symptoms without even realizing it. That's and cool. it's called, uh, like, medical student disease or something, something of the sort. And mm -hmm. psychology students kind of get the same thing. So it, it's almost tempting to, you know, 
when you're studying all these different disorders to think, oh, oh, that hits a bit too close to home, but the odds are you would probably know if you had X or Y. Right. Problem. That is, that is cool that there's like a documented um, phenomenon whereby when you, when you uh, come across a new word for the first time, you start to see it more frequently in places. Yes, right. absolutely. Right. Um, so how do you, Eliza de Temple, maintain a healthy work-life balance? By putting a lot of effort in it. Um, honestly, it's, it's crazy how much effort I have to put in to not put in effort kind of thing. Um, so Lucky. I, I think an, an important thing that I found was to create like kind of a schedule. And especially during quarantine, um, it's been hard because we're always at home. Right. right. Um, and it's tempting to kind of work on weekends. Right. Yes. Because it's, Oh my goodness. Yes. Right. Exactly. Because I mean, you're at home anyways, what are days, what are weeks, time's a construct, like nothing matters. Agreed. So I found that keeping track of the day of the week and making sure that I do not touch my work on the weekend, um, helps a whole lot. Um, and like I said, I like art a lot and though I'm not very good at it, I make a point of, you know, like picking up my watercolors when I can, because it's just very distracting and, and peaceful and I read a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, so these types of things like you, that I consciously make time for, like I will set my alarm I will not go to bed any later than 12 usually and I'll give myself an hour to read before bed so that I'm not staring at a screen. So you're in bed at 12 reading from 12 to one or in bed at 11? In bed at 11. Whoa, whoa, game changer here. Listen up listeners, (laughs) 11 p.m. bedtime. This is an adult woman who knows how to paint with watercolors. I also totally back the pre-bed routine of not just staring at your screen doing work until the moment that you close your laptop or your desktop uh, if you're if you're stationary like that <laughs> um, so yeah i totally back that listeners listen it's listening friday so better make sure that you get your broomsticks ready to take some notes uh, <laughs> because sorry i think this this episode has has just become a cesspool of inside jokes i've tried to create between us and the <laughs> listeners so listeners if you're listening because it is listening friday let's keep this uh let's keep this thing moving right along so that's great uh really nice i'm super happy to have um have guests on the podcast who have great work life balance and who work hard at it too because it, it doesn't come naturally to most people and a lot of people have the very bad habit of just forgetting about it just forgetting about it so the fact that you did not forget about it is really great. Yeah, yeah. And it's the kind of thing where it often deteriorates as well as the session goes. So it'll be like great, like for the first two months. And then for the last month, like it'll take extra effort on my part if I want to like close my laptop and read, um, especially because I'm a very anxious person as well. So um, yeah, to anyone as well listening who's very anxious, like making an extra point of, you know, making time for yourself is uh, very, very helpful. Absolutely. I back it 100%. Thank you for the, for the advice. Um, of course. Pretty much ready to wrap up here. I could definitely talk uh, with you for the next many, many I, hours, but there's, there's a limit. There's a limit. There has to be a limit. I, I mean, of course. Uh, so definitely happy to have you back uh, as, as your thesis progresses, for sure. 100% interested, so you're welcome back anytime, uh, not within the next six months. Yeah, I, I may not have a thesis in six months that is ready to be talked about anyways. Okay, so. perfect. We'll make it 12 <laughs> then. Keep you guys posted. Yeah, today is May 15th, 2020. I'll see you May 15th, 2021. Sounds good. Oh, I can't wait. We'll it's get it done. Day. I'll put yeah. you in the calendar. Um, is there, are there, are there any parting words you'd like to give to the listeners? Could be related to what we've spoken about. Could be totally unrelated. They've already gotten way more advice than they paid for. So (laughs) you don't have to say anything, but if there is one thing. Um, well, I mean, for one, live long and prosper. Okay. All right. Um, Definitely outed yourself there. That's yeah. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, uh, and you know what? Uh, grad school is difficult um, for anyone who wants to pursue it or is pursuing it, you'll know. But it is worth it if you take time to enjoy it. Um, so, and part of that is taking care of yourself and it's making sure that you're doing research that interests you and try to remember why you're there in the first place as well. Um, because it's a, so far anyways, for me, it's been a very rewarding experience and I hope it'll be the case for everyone. And hello to all of the newbies coming this fall, the COVID yes. cohort. So sorry. Cohort. How about that? It's true. There's a whole slew of people who are going to get this weird entrance into grad school. So with that, we will end the episode here. Thanks again so much, Eliza, for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Of course. Well, thanks for asking me. This was a great idea, Jeremy. Yeah. I don't even know if I asked you. I think I just got to put the post out there and you just were chomping at the bit. So I was I happen to have my phone. It's just I happen to have my phone at the right place and the GSP has been trying to find ways to engage the community and I was like, he knows what is up. I do. So, yeah, yeah, you do. That is one of the things that I know. I know three things. More about those other things on the next episode. So you're going to have to stay tuned for the other two things that I know. I'm going to have to keep track of this so I know to mention. Hold on a second. That's a lot of things to know. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are sub things within those things. Eliza, is there anywhere that we could reach you on the socials? On the socials? Well, yes, I have a Twitter, um, Eliza Temple. Um, and on Facebook, just Eliza. Just, Eliza. just Eliza. You're like the Madonna of the academic world. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. I'm Madonna, Cher, no, no, Eliza de Temple. But yeah, feel free to send a message if you're curious in my research or at my lab. Uh, I work at the Cognitive and Language Development Lab. Um, shameless plug. Um, our research no is awesome. Look it up. It is awesome. I just learned that in the last hour and hopefully you did too. So perfect. Amazing. Have a great fun Friday. Uh, thank God it is what it is. And uh, I will see you all around. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at Abstract Cast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So. Feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.